everybody. So we're going to begin this morning with an overview look at chapter, chapters 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, so 1, 1 to 2, 3, and then next week we'll kind of zoom in a little bit to um, 1, 26 to 2, 3, see particularly how we're made in God's image and uh, all the implications of that. So the title Genesis means the origin or the coming into being of something. So very appropriate English title for this, the first book of the Bible. Um, so we find in this book the origin of the world, but also the origin of other things like the origin of mankind, the origin of sin, and all of the brokenness that's all around us that we all experience. It's also the origin of God's mercy and grace to create a people for himself, the people of God. Um, beginning with Abraham, so a new people. The Hebrew title, though, is Bereshit, which translated is in the beginning, okay, which is how the book begins, in the beginning, God. So the title of our series as we walk through the whole book is In the Beginning, God. And that doesn't just apply to chapters 1 and 2 because the whole book is filled with beginnings, okay, origin stories. So all the origins that Genesis recounts, we need to keep something in mind here. We need to keep in mind that God is the main actor. Okay? In the beginning, God. So this is the beginning of the story of the universe, the story of the world, the story of humanity, but God is actually the hero of the story. He's the author of the story he is before the story even begins. And he's orchestrating it all, and he's at the center of it all. All of life, all of everything begins with God. So we should actually be on the lookout for God as we study the book of Genesis and actually as we study all of the Bible. And we should be on the lookout for him as we walk through every moment of this little brief moment that we have in the midst of this great story that God is writing. So our time on this earth is it's like a vapor. It's brief. But all of our moment needs to be focused on the main actor, author of this great story on God himself. So to not be focused on God and on the lookout for him is actually really pretty crazy, if you think about it. Okay, so think of a story or a movie that you love. This is audience participation time. You got one? Everybody got one in your mind? Okay. Now, remove the main character. What happened? Does that affect the plot at all? I mean, just think about that story without the main character. It just totally falls apart. It becomes meaningless and kind of weird, even incoherent. Well, that's exactly what happens when we try to cut God out of his rightful role in the great story. And you know what? When we do that, we end up trying to cast ourselves oftentimes in the lead role. Have you ever done this in your head? You know? where you cast yourself as your own savior. Maybe there's a threat, or maybe somebody made you look bad at work. And so the next time, like, 
you're going to be ready with the perfect comeback, but probably not. So what you do is you just play the game in your head. You play the thing over again, and all the right people are there, and you've got just the right comeback, and you are the star. So when we cut God out, we start to get really anxious as though we don't have a Heavenly Father who knows what we need. Or when we cut God out, we end up wanting to take revenge because we don't believe God is going to bring justice. Or we just want the glory that only he deserves. We want the credit that only he deserves because everything comes from him. So this is actually why John 1 picks up the story. This is one big story. The Bible's one big story, one ultimate author, one unified storyline. John 1, which Tyler read, picks up the story and carries it along with the good news about Jesus. Because even though everything was created good, 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 very good in the beginning, we blew it up. We wanted to cut God out of the story. We've all done that. We all want our will to be done on earth as it is in our own minds. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. And so this same God sends his son, Jesus, willingly, the word made flesh, willingly comes to rescue us from ourselves, from our sin, from our selfishness. So he was the true light coming into the world. We didn't even recognize him. That's why they tacked him to a tree. He came to his own, but they didn't receive him. But... There's good news. Because he lived, because he died in our place for our sins to make us new, all who receive him, who believe in his name, that he really is the Savior, the rescuer, he gave the right to become children of God. We can be made new and reconciled to God. So as we go through this, don't separate the beginning from the rest of the story. It's vital because the threads that are anchored in Genesis run the whole way through the Bible, but we can't divorce Genesis from the rest of the story because this, is, this story is heading somewhere, and it's heading to Jesus who begins to make all things new, and then Jesus comes again, and everything is made new. And we come back, and there's a garden again. And anyway, that's a, we won't talk about that this morning. But... If you don't realize that that is the story or if that's new to you, oh, how I encourage you to take up this story and read and learn about Jesus and trust in him because he is the one you were made for and he can make you new and give you this right to become a child of God and all the blessings that come along with that. All right, a few more just introductory thoughts on the series as we head in. So we're going to be in Genesis for a while. Um, I don't know how many weeks it'll take, less than a year, but we're going to be in here for a while. But can I suggest that you would read Genesis the whole way through here on the front end, once, maybe twice, and then each week read the next week's section on, you know, Saturday night or early Sunday morning or whenever so that it's fresh 
But I think the more that we put into this, the more that we'll get out of it. There's also some really great resources that can help us get the forest view, forest for the trees. Um, ESV Study Bible has some great introductory material. I'll put some other stuff on the blog so that you can see it. Um, there's a great introduction to Genesis course that ties in with the Gospel Project, which is what we use with our kids on Sunday morning um, in Sunday school, starting again in September. Um, it incorporates that and ESV Study Bible stuff and videos and other resources. And so, again, I'll link to that on, on, our, on the blog, on the website. You can check that out later. All right, let's dive in. So there's an outline in the bulletin. You can see that the first four points actually create a sentence. And this is a good summary of what, what this beginning teaches. In the beginning, God, by his sovereign word, ordered the chaos and filled the emptiness and it was very good. Okay, and then we'll have kind of a concluding thought about how our lives and our little stories fit into the big story. So that outline is in the bulletin if you want to use that. It'll also, the slides will be up um, as we walk through this. So let's dive in. In the beginning, God. So as you read through this first chapter, in the beginning of chapter 2, there's some important words repeated. And none as often or as important as, guess, I heard it. God. That's right. 35 times. So this is like verbal reinforcement of the centrality of God in this story. Okay? There's something else about this beginning that we might not realize, though, from just looking at the text. Because the world of the Bible, kind of the context in which it was written, is so distant from us. So Genesis is very different from other origin stories of the ancient world. There's some parallels, but also it's very different in other ways. So, for instance, I actually read this document this week, the Enuma Elish. You know, you can look it up and go read it. It's not that long. But it's the, the origin myth of the Babylonians, dating to somewhere around 1800 B.C., give or take 100 years or so. So, a lot of these ancient mythical origin stories are kind of like soap operas. <laughs> Like, we could call it as the cosmos turns or something like that, you know? So in these stories, oftentimes there's these battles between the gods, you know. And so with this one, the purpose of it is to yield an explanation of how Marduk became supreme. Okay, so there's actually a point to this, so hang in there. So scholars note the, uh, that the Enuma Elish is a modified version of a much older Sumerian version where the chief god was Enlil, the Sumerian storm god. <coughs> Why did they modify it? Well, because Babylon conquered the rest of Mesopotamia. So the story had to be retold to explain how divine supremacy belonged to Marduk and not Enlil. So the story was rewritten, and wouldn't you know it, Marduk wins. So hold that thought and add this to it. Who wrote Genesis? Anybody? Moses, okay, yeah. So Moses is the primary author of Genesis, and so it was written after the Exodus, most likely, but prior to entrance into the Promised Land, okay? So think about the first hearers, the first audience of these books, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Egypt had its gods. For instance, Ra was identified with the sun, sun god. 
Canaan had its gods. They were heading into the promised land, right? Baal, for instance, the storm and fertility god. So these were powerful deities that struck fear in their followers. You didn't want to get on the bad side of these gods. So think of the fearful Israelites who had been slaves in Egypt under Pharaoh and Ra, among other gods. Think of the fearful Israelites who were reticent to enter the promised land where Baal ruled. And Moses writes Genesis and says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, including the sun. Okay? So, on Ra. That's the whole point. He is the sole sovereign creator and sustainer of all life, all fertility and flourishing on the earth to Baal. So this is a polemic. It's like a challenge to all these so-called gods. It's subversive to this world's rival powers. There is one God, and he reigns supreme. So creation wasn't the result of a cosmic soap opera, you know, with some moody, divine adolescents doing their thing. There was no primeval drama. So for the first readers, as the Israelites left Egypt and its gods behind and headed into Canaan with its gods ahead, God wanted to make sure they had good reason to trust the one true and living God who is infinitely more powerful than any other so-called God. And guess what? This text is written to bolster our faith too. We fear threats behind us. We fear threats out ahead of us. But we don't worship some local village deity. This creation origin story never has to be rewritten, never will have to be rewritten because some other god came in and beat our god out for the universe's throne. Nope. He created everything. He rules everything. He has no rivals, and we can trust him today. With whatever threat from the past is dogging you, whatever threat out there in the what-ifs is dogging you. So in addition, in those ancient origin myths, you know what? Human beings were usually created in order to meet the needs of the gods or to do their dirty work. <laughs> Not so here in Genesis. So the way it's different from all those other kind of typical stories really stands out. It would have stood out to those first readers, and we need to kind of get into the world of the Bible to realize this. So God creates everything good, good, very good, and blesses the animals and gives them everything that they need and then blesses the humans and gives them everything that they need. He didn't create us because he was lonely. He didn't create us because he was needy. He certainly didn't create us because he didn't want to get his hands dirty with some lowly jobs on earth. He created to give and bless and serve. I love Acts 17, 24 and 25. Listen to this. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And most ultimately, he did all of this to give us himself, to give us relationship with himself, 
So he is this overflowing fountain of joy and life and love. And he created because he wanted to share his grace and his glory with us. So that's really good news. Good news starts right at the beginning. Okay? Now, another little qualification here. I'm going to just... I'm going to give a word about the fact that I'm not going to give a word about the whole creation-evolution debate, okay? So I'm not going to go there this morning. That might be disappointing to some of you. There's plenty of scholars who've written and spoken really clearly, eloquently on those matters, so I'm happy to recommend some to you. If you're interested, you can just ask me. But here's the point. The text itself that God has given us is selective, sometimes maddeningly so. And I'm actually going to follow the text's lead, God's lead in being selective as far as what we focus on. So the Bible simply doesn't answer all the questions we pose. And and oftentimes the questions and issues focused on in these debates are questions that science is requiring of a text that was never intended to give scientific answers. So there's a, a lot of people that wrestle more ably with these matters. I'm happy to point you to the resources, but... I'll just say a few things for what it's worth in case any of you are nervous. Is this in a historical account? Yes, absolutely. It would undermine the rest of the Bible, the way that the Bible views Genesis to not to believe otherwise. Were Adam and Eve the first human persons, specially and directly created by God? Yes. Do we allow scientific hypotheses that very quickly venture into metaphysical and philosophical speculation? Do we let those set the agenda or trump what the Bible does say? No. But listen to a good little summary from the ESV Study Bible. It's wrong to use Genesis as if it were directly furnishing information in modern scientific form. It is nonetheless crucial to affirm its historical account and its God-centered worldview in order to provide a proper foundation for doing good science. So our time is actually better spent listening to, meditating on, and heeding what God has revealed rather than speculating about what he hasn't revealed. And I'm not saying those questions are unimportant. I'm just saying, for our purposes here, we're going to focus on what the text focuses on. And if you're interested in the creation-evolution stuff and, you know, six days or day age or gap theory or what, you know, all this stuff, I can point you to helpful resources that will get you into those waters. All right? So, one last thing, and then and we're going to start looking at the text here. Um, as we look at Genesis 1, this is a good just point of orientation. We don't want to just focus on details and information about God and his world, but through God's word, it really, we want it to enter in and cause us to worship the God whose world this is. Okay? Worship him for his sovereignty and his goodness, which is all over these opening verses. So think about it this way. We don't want to just learn the scientific makeup of honey. We want to taste it and go, mmm, that's sweet. We don't want to just learn about God and the origin of his world. We want to taste and see that the Lord is good in his good, good, very good creation. Okay? So we're actually after an encounter with God, not just information about God. So let's study him to be dazzled by him. I love how Victor Hugo describes the bishop in his classic Les Miserables. 
Here's what he says. He thought of the grandeur and presence of God, of the future eternity, that strange mystery of the eternity past, a mystery still more strange, of all the infinities which pierced their way into all his senses, beneath his eyes, and without seeking to comprehend the incomprehensible, he gazed upon it. He did not study God. He was dazzled by him. Okay? Maybe we could say, let's study God to be dazzled by him. Okay? So let's consider first his sovereign power, and then we'll look at his goodness in the passage. So here we go. Um, if you're not, if you haven't turned there already, make sure you're there in Genesis 1. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Look down at verse 6. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters from the waters, and it was so. So ten times we read, and God said. And then, repeatedly, there's language like, and it was so, or, and there was light. So his only tools were his words. So think of the power of God's word. He created all things by the power of his word, and he sustains and upholds the universe by the same. It says so in Hebrews 1.3. So he had nothing to work with. This was out of nothing. He thought it all up with no consultants, no counselors. So, so think about it. How often are we more impressed as far as our worship, our awe, our like, whoa? How often are we more impressed by Hollywood's special effects than with the real creation that's marvelous and wonderful? How often are we more interested in Silicon Valley's slick wares than God's glory in creation? How, how in the world can we get bored and indifferent to the glory of God that's all around us in his creation? So as we go along, God created the heavens, the stars, the universe, which is just mind-blowingly vast. I'll give you a little taste of that. So I'm reading with, uh, with Johnny and Ben this book called The Radical Book for Kids by Champ Thornton. He's actually associate pastor down at Ogletown. It's a great little book. Um, I love this. He has this section called, think about it, Big Universe, Bigger God. This may help as we consider God's glory in the stars and the expanse of the universe. The Voyager 1 space probe is traveling into outer space at a speed of about 38,500 miles per hour. To put this into perspective, passenger jets fly at around 600 miles an hour. In other words, the speed of the, of the space probe is about 64 times faster than a jet. At space probe speed, you could travel from New York to Los Angeles in 4 minutes, 40 seconds. At 38,500 miles an hour, it would take only a, little, only a little over 6 hours for the probe to reach the moon, which is 240,000 miles from Earth. It would take about 52 days to reach the planet Mars. Now, if you wanted to visit Saturn, you might want someone to feed your pet for you because you'd be gone four years, nine months. 
Voyager 1 launched in 1977, and now after traveling, traveling so fast for almost 40 years, it's approaching the, I think it actually did pass out. So it's a little dated by a year or two. Um, it passed outside the edge of our solar system. But let's not stop there. Do you know how long it would take you to reach Proxima Centauri, the closest star to our own sun? Even at a blazing 38,500 miles per hour, that trip would take 80,000 years. Pushing the boundaries of our minds and distances, did you realize that a journey across the Milky Way galaxy would take 26 billion years? One more crazy number. It's estimated that the universe has 200 billion, billion galaxies. One galaxy, 26 billion years to get across it, going 38,000 miles an hour. And that's just one of a couple hundred billion galaxies with a couple hundred billion stars in each one of them. And sometimes we're bored with God and more excited about Hollywood or Silicon Valley. Come on. So sometimes I think we just need to kind of come awake to the reality that's actually all around us. Like elephants, do you know they can hear with their feet? I'll let you go check that one out. <laughs> Strawberries have the seeds on the outside. Redwoods, blowfish, glaciers, geysers, sand. Like, we get so familiar with things that are common. Water is crazy. The next time you go to the pool, just stop and think about the fact that you're floating in liquid. What is liquid? What, what is liquid? Dragon fruit. I had my first dragon fruit recently. That's a wild thing. Kind of cool. Cross between like a kiwi and a pear. God made dragon fruit, and he made fruit flies that come out of nowhere, don't they? Like spontaneously. I don't know how that works. Um, we could just go on T-Rexes and tree frogs. Snow. Starfish. Pineapples, pine cones, anacondas, mitochondria, hurricanes, hair, moose and mice, camels and coral. I mean, we just, you could just go on and on. None of this stuff was the product of a brainstorming session with the angels. God alone is mind blowingly creative in every conceivable category. So we as human beings should and we can reflect our creator's creativity because. You know, we are makers and artists, and it's wonderful to see people made in God's image producing wonderfully beautiful things that look beautiful or sound beautiful or, or really work well or whatever. But let it, let's admit it, at our best, we're just rearrangers. We're just shufflers, followers. We're wannabes. We're posers. We need to get over ourselves and stop, stop getting over God. Familiarity with this magical world all around us can breed indifference, and that's just... Nuts, because we live in a magical, marvelous world that all speaks, listen, speaks of the glory of God. So sometimes we just need to pray that God would open our eyes to see it. Like, isn't a banana a, a crazy, miraculous thing? Or like a grape? It's just like this little juice ball. Like, God made juice balls for us. It's awesome. So... Let the isness of things just blow your mind. So, Chad, put the picture of this bug. I know this sounds like probably seem really trivial, 
You see that crazy thing? It was on that door over there. I've never seen a bug like that before. Can you see it? It's orange and it's got... I was on my way back from a prayer walk and there's this crazy bug just right on the door. I'm like, what in the world? I'm trying to like get my phone to like focus on it because it's so small. But look at those colors. This is just multiplied times millions of different bugs and insects and animals and wonders all around us. Okay, so why would we be so prone to worship creation's creators and human creator's creations instead of our glorious creator from whom it all comes? We can be so, like, gushing and we can fawn over the stuff that we dirt, dust balls make. Yeah, some of us are dirt balls too, but dust balls. Um, but God is the real glorious creator. So let's worship him. So even just let's pray that we leave here with new eyes, open eyes, on the lookout for God's created glory that speaks of his glorious creator character. He did it all by mere words, omnipotently powerful words. In the beginning, God, by his sovereign word, what did he do? He ordered the chaos and he filled the emptiness. So now we're going to read through this whole passage. And I want you to look for two things. Where he orders the chaos and where he fills the emptiness. Because, look at verse 2. The earth was without form and void. Chaotic and empty. Get it? So that's where it started. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. But the Spirit of, of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated. Do you see? Every time you see the word separated, it's speaking of order out of chaos. It's taking without form, and it's giving it form. You see that? God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. So the sky clouds the atmosphere from the waters on the earth. God made the expanse and separated form to the without form. Separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Form to formlessness. God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, planting, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing seed in which, I'm sorry, bearing fruit in which is their seed and each according to its kind on the earth. Do you see both filling and ordering happening here? So the earth is now sprouting vegetation. It was void. Now it's starting to grow and flourish. And there's separation and order here because the fruit trees are according to their kinds. There's order. It's a taxonomy. So bearing fruit in which is their seed, there's actually more productivity built in. 
So there's fullness built into the fullness. Fullness upon fullness. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation. More fullness to the void. Plants yielding seed according to their own kinds. Separating and ordering. And trees bearing fruit in which is their seed. Each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning. The third day. These day Morning, evening, that's also separation and form. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. Again, more order to the without form. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness, more form to the formlessness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm. There was a void, now it's full of creatures. Swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens, filling the void once again. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. It's the fifth time it says good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. Again, filling the void. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. It's all form to the formlessness. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. More order and actually giving rule to us as his creatures to bring that order. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the void. And fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. Just superabundance in the fullness that's brought to this void. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. That's the seventh time that things are declared good, which is the number of fullness and completion. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So we're going to consider this a little bit more next week when we look at God creating us in his image, but briefly here. Genesis in the beginning here kind of hints at the triunity, the multi-personality in God, right? 
in the beginning God, then the Spirit of God is hovering. And because we know how the story unfolds, we know the rest of the story. We know that God exists in triune glory, right? So John 1 that Tyler read, the Word was with God and the Word was God. So we read Genesis 1 in that light, and the Trinity is there kind of in acorn form because God the Father created the heavens and the earth. The Spirit of God was hovering, and God said. There's his word, present. So God created all things by his omnipotent word and by his Spirit. He ordered the chaos, and he filled the emptiness. So one simple but profound point that we should draw from this. How often? See, God, with this good, 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 very good creation, fills it, brings order and flourishing. Sin leads to disintegration and emptiness and brokenness and chaos. So how often is there chaos and emptiness in your life, in my life? often. It's the result of our sin. It's the result of sin against us or just simply because we live in a broken, fallen world. It's often the case. But we can have hope because we worship the living God. Don't run to other things. Self-medicate. Try to fill the void with so-called gods running to food or sex or money or whatever for comfort and satisfaction. We worship the living God who can do it again. He can, through his word and by his spirit, he can order our inner chaos, our relational chaos, and he can fill our emptiness. Isn't that good news? So in the beginning, God, by his sovereign word, ordered the chaos, filled the emptiness, and it was very good. Point four, good, 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 very good. Seven times, like I said, number of perfection. So... What's this all mean? It means that he knows what's best for us. He created us. He defines what is good. He gets to define what good is and what evil is. We don't. In fact, that was what Satan challenged. And the eating of the fruit was challenging God's right to know what was good and bad and instead saying, we will determine that. Thank you. The other thing that's implied here in this good, good, very good is there's purpose. There is a design. There's a designer. So do you realize that the, there can only be a truly good life with purpose and meaning that is real and ultimate if there is a designed good, if there's a real purpose to why this world was made? So if there's no original purpose, we're left to just kind of cobble our own purpose together. And really, whatever we experience, you know, as meaningful or frustrating or satisfying or painful or whatever, it's just the sloshing of chemicals and the impersonal turning of, you know, mechanistic cold gears in the universe. No, that's not the case because there is a creator and he made everything good. There is true meaning and purpose and joy and satisfaction but it can only be found in alignment with the designer. So there's an edge to this. Purpose and goodness and meaning can only come from him, can only be defined by him. Meaning and significance comes 
through his definition. So evil is the perversion of the good he made. So it's a call to trust him, whether it's matters of our own sexuality and identity or how he's made us in other ways that we might be dissatisfied with, you know, our lot in life, what we have or what we don't have. Trust him. He is the source of good. Or even how the good life is defined. We need to trust the one who made everything good. So this is the very good beginning to the story. And it's our story as God's special creation, made in his image, but fallen. Son of God, word made flesh, came down to seek and save, to make us new. So this is our story. Genesis is the beginning to kind of open our horizons to see the hugeness of this God who is orchestrating everything, who wrote the story, who created our little lives. So whatever anxieties, whatever fears, desires, distractions you brought in here today, this is a call to pull out of your little moment. Like sometimes we get our trials and troubles like right up here and we can't see around them and we need some perspective. And Genesis 1 is saying, big God, little you, see him, get your eyes fixed on him, pull out of your little moment, your little typical myopic perspective and see how you fit in the bigger story, the biggest story, all being orchestrated by the big God, the one true and living God. So let me just close with a little reality therapy, he calls it, um, by John Bloom to help us kind of pull out from our typical kind of earthworm-like orientation. We could just crank it out day after day, wake up, do the work, come home, watch some TV, eat the food, get, go to bed. Anxiety, you know, let's get some perspective here. So John Bloom wrote a little blog post called Your Life is Not Boring. So listen to this, and then we're going to sing a song to call us all to behold our God, get our eyes on him, and then we'll be, be done. So here's what he writes. Sometimes we need a good dose of reality therapy, a reminder that reality is far wilder and more wonderful than we often realize. We have this strange tendency to take our own existence others' existence and the world we live in for granted, as if these are just mundane facts, as if living on a giant sphere spinning at 1,000 miles per hour while orbiting around a gargantuan fireball at about 67,000 miles per hour in a solar system that's traveling around the Milky Way at over 500,000 miles per hour, while the galaxy itself is hurtling through space at more than 1.3 million miles per hour is just sort of ho-hum. And the real exciting action is taking place on Facebook or Fortnite. No, we need to pull our heads out of our virtual worlds of self-preoccupation and remember what's real, what's breathtakingly, gloriously real. So here we go. First, you're here. When was the last time you really thought about that? You're here. And you're here because God wants you here. Regardless of the circumstances surrounding your birth, how much or little others have valued you, your abilities or disabilities, how sweetly other people have nurtured you, or how terribly they have abused you, what kind of sinner you were, or how long you were, you are here because God chose here and now for you. You exist because God wanted you to exist, Acts 17. And as a Christian, God chose to make you his child in Christ. 
He began to love you as his own before the universe as we know it existed. Ephesians 1, 3 to 6. And God is pursuing you with goodness and mercy every day of your life. Psalm 23, verse 6. Yes, every day. And he will bless you exceedingly abundantly beyond anything your remarkable but still relatively limited imagination has yet conceived. Ephesians 3.20. That is your reality. Do you believe it? I mean, really. Not as a mere abstract theological fact, but as something that sometimes makes you catch your breath and your knees go a little bit wobbly. Does it ever hit you that you are God's idea and God's creation, that he intended you to be There's far more to your existence than lunch and soccer practice and Netflix and turning in that report and that broken relationship and the congressional elections and retirement savings and Abercrombie and Fitch. Amen? Anybody? Do you know how rare you are as a living being? Life in the physical, observable universe is very, 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 very rare. And that's a dramatic understatement. The conditions that must be met for life to exist are so restrictive that far from it being likely that other intelligent beings exist in the cosmos, it is nothing short of a miracle that any life, not to mention intelligent life, exists anywhere. And you, statistically speaking, you should not exist. Given the incalculable billions of sperm and ova combined with the incalculable billions of circumstantial twists and turns over the course of human history, any one of which could have resulted in you not being here at all, it's nothing short of a miracle that you are. You, as a living being, are so rare and as a statistical probability so unlikely, we can scarcely begin to comprehend the marvel of your existence. You're alive because against all the obstacles and probabilities, God gave you life. Let's pray. Oh God, we worship you and we thank you for giving us life. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And despite the fact that we ate the fruit, and death entered in, and we all die, and we're all born bent curved in on ourselves, living for ourselves. You loved us. You came after us to give us new life, eternal life through Christ. And I pray that we would behold your glory in this universe around us, this world around us, and behold your glory most fully in your Son who died for us to make us new, to give us so much grace and mercy and kindness now and forever. Thrill us with your grace, we pray in Jesus' name.